All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Trailhead Church and happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, today, we get to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Easter is um, just an incredible opportunity in the Christian calendar um, to, to remember the resurrection of Jesus and to celebrate it. In fact, it is such a big celebration, we can't confine it to a single day. So we're going to keep doing it next week, just to let you know. Uh, this is a two-week celebration, and uh, if you want to be part of it, you need to come back, okay? Um, the Jewish people knew how to celebrate, and when they did weddings, it was like seven days of celebration, right? And so with Easter, let's, uh, let's extend it a little bit. Uh, and part of the reason is the text we're going to be covering this morning, we're going to, we're going to start unpacking it this morning. Uh, it begins with a, really a provocative statement. And then it moves on to, to really three really insightful and powerful applications where we are invited to move into the beauty and the reality of that provocative statement. So this morning, we're going to unpack the provocative statement. Next week, we're going to be digging into um, how we have an invitation to move into the beauty of it. So we're going to Hebrews chapter 10. So grab your Bibles. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Go ahead and open up your iPhones, your iPads, or your UVerse or whatever, whatever you're using. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to, to grab one off the floor around you. We have Bibles distributed throughout the room. And uh, so go ahead and look around, and, and uh, if you see one, nudge somebody and have them hand it over to you. In our Bibles, we're going to page 1007. 1007. This is Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 19. All right, beginning of verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the word of the Lord. All right, happy Easter. Today is the day we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to make it clear that when I say that, we're not saying that we are celebrating the story of the resurrection of Jesus. We're not simply celebrating the good idea of the resurrection of Jesus. We're not simply um, talking about this as an abstract idea. We are celebrating the historical person and the historical event. Jesus was a real man who really died and really rose from the dead. That is at the heart of our faith, that Jesus was actually physically a man who was crucified and actually physically came back to life. This is not optional in the Christian faith. It is absolutely essential. Paul told the Corinthians as much in 1 Corinthians 15 when he is speaking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were having a hard time believing in resurrection. You know, they were having a hard time. The whole bodily resurrection thing was just throwing them off a little bit. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he lays out an argument about why resurrection is important and answers some of their questions about it. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been bodily raised from the dead, your faith is futile. If Christ has not been bodily raised from the dead, your faith is futile. It's vain. It's empty of meaning. It may make you feel good, but it doesn't have any worth. It has no value. It has no import other than maybe a hallmark moment of a momentary pleasant feeling. If it's not real, it has no value. That's Paul, right? The resurrection of Christ is absolutely central to our understanding of our relationship with God. If Christ has not been raised bodily from the dead, your faith is useless. So let's pause and admit a few things, okay? First of all, believers, um, you ever struggle with doubts? You ever just like every once in a while think, what in the world is this thing I believe? <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. Are you serious, right? Okay, it's okay. You can admit those doubts. You can bring them into the light, right? I mean, I don't think there's anybody in the room that's ever seen somebody raised from the dead, right? Can we admit that it is outside of our normal experience? Can we admit that it is, in fact, counter to anything we have ever actually experienced? We've all seen the effects of death. 
and there's a long history and a long pattern, right? So I get it. I get it. Um, I want to pause and consider how crazy this thing is, right? We believe Jesus raised, or God raised Jesus from the dead, right? That, that, that he was dead. His body was flayed. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped working. His, his brain stopped firing through the neural pathways, like, like the blood was drained from his body. We're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about reviving. We're talking about resurrection. He was dead. His body was meat. And then miraculously, his brain started firing. His broken heart started pumping. The blood that had been drained from his body miraculously replaced. The, the skin that had been flayed off his bones miraculously healed. That's what we're talking about. Now, if you were invited here today by a friend or a family member, and you have a hard time believing this stuff, I get it. <laughs> I'll let you know up front. Um, I get it, okay? This is not um, easy stuff to believe, right? I understand why you might have a hard time believing it. You aren't alone. And I'm going to tell you, your skepticism is completely justified. Because what we're talking about is uh, miraculous, truly miraculous, something that doesn't happen. And... Um, and so I want to challenge you this morning, though, um, all of us, I want to challenge you this morning to consider the evidence, um, because I believe it is actually quite reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, I'm going to explain to you why I actually have a hard time believing He doesn't, right, that He didn't. It is so reasonable that um, I have a hard time believing He didn't rise from the dead. And I'm not alone. The author of the book of Hebrews said that he had confidence in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And this is the provocative statement. Listen to it. It's in verse 19. You can take a look at it if you have your Bible open. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, assurance, boldness, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. All right, pause. We have confidence. Now, what he's saying is we have confidence to approach God because Jesus died and He rose again. They are confident in the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they're confident in what it did, that it was efficacious in its work. How can He be so confident? I mean, let's just seriously. How can He be so confident? And I know some of you right now are like, well, of course He was confident. He lived in the first century. He's like pre-science, right? They're, they're like primitives. They were just ignorant. They believed in sky fairies. Of course they believed in resurrection. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's really easy to look back and be like, well, of course they believed in resurrection. They were just so gullible. All right, we're revealing a little bit of our cultural arrogance when we say things like that. Uh, we really do believe, if we're honest, that we're the most enlightened, the most intelligent, the most scientific people that have ever walked the face of the earth. Of course, we've discovered DNA, and, and we've discovered the secrets of the universe, and, and we understand how everything works, and everybody that came before us was really just living in the dark ages, and they were dumb. Um, well, we need to do our homework, um, because here's the thing. It is true. They didn't have as much scientific knowledge as we do today. That's true. They didn't understand the, the, the inner workings of, of genetics. That, that is true. Um, but what we do need to understand is that they had a worldview, and that worldview was not friendly to resurrection. The idea of resurrection was foreign to them. In fact, just as foreign to them as it would be to us today. If you walk up to an average person on the street who's not a believer, and you're like, hey, do you believe in the resurrection from the dead? The average person is going to look at you and say, no. Why? Because we've never seen it. It's never happened. If you were to walk up to the average person during the first century and ask them, do you believe in the resurrection of dead? They would have responded the same exact way. Their cultural world, the flow of their common thinking was philosophically opposed to the idea of the resurrection. The Greek world completely rejected the idea of resurrection. Uh, the Romans, who were the political ruling power, um, had a vague idea of the soul an existence after death, but basically you went to this shadowy land where you would be simply diminishing until you simply disappeared. 
The Greeks, um, Platonic theory, so those who were followers of Plato, believed that the goal, uh, that you had an eternal soul, that there was a piece of you that would last, um, but the goal was to be free to the body. In fact, it was to be from free of the physical universe. The idea of physical resurrection to them was, was abhorrent and ridiculous. The goal isn't to be resurrected in a physical body. The goal is to move on to some higher spiritual plane. So whether you, you were speaking to, to Romans or to, to Greeks, you would have not found a friendly audience for resurrection. Was it much better with the Jews? Not a chance. The, the dominant religious party of the day were the Sadducees. They, they were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And they were kind of the dominant political voice um, during this period of time. And the Sanhedrin, very simply, didn't believe in the eternality of the soul. They believed the soul died with the body. They they didn't believe that there was uh, an ongoing afterlife. There was no resurrection of the body. It would have been ridiculous to them. The Pharisees did have a doctrine uh, that would embrace resurrection, but for them, it was something that only occurred at the end of the days, at the end of time when God raised um, everyone to a final judgment. And so there was a bit of a, a friendlier res- response there. But even them, um, the idea of a single person being raised in the middle of human history uh, was something that was um, uh, beyond their understanding. So what I want you to get is this. For us to assume that the first century mind was more inclined to receive this is just cultural arrogance. This message came into a world hostile to the message. The first century believers were sharing the resurrection of Jesus with a lot of people who were looking at them with the same skeptical look on their face that people give you today. It was not coming into a world that was quick to embrace it. This was hard for them to believe, just like it is for us. So this is what I want you to catch. How does he have confidence? When he says, we have confidence, confidence demands evidence. Confidence demands evidence. So how can the author of Hebrews say he's confident? That, that we, his, his readers, can also be confident? Because the evidence is real and convincing. The, the first form of evidence, and in fact, the most powerful form of evidence used in the first century was, in fact, the eyewitnesses, the people who actually saw it. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's a divine mystery. Uh, They didn't identify themselves. We do know that it was um, probably either Paul or somebody associated with Paul. From just studying the text, the ideas in the book of Hebrews are very similar to the ideas developed by Paul. Uh, And in fact, we see some very similar uh, lines of thinking, which makes you believe that either he wrote it or somebody very similar to him. I don't believe it was Paul because um, the, the, the voice that comes out of the text uh, isn't Paul's. It reads like somebody who was, had a more Greek education than Paul. Paul had a very Jewish education. It would kind of be like listening to somebody speak from New York. You would know they weren't from Mississippi. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if somebody spoke from Mississippi, you'd know they weren't from California. There's a, there's a, a tone that comes uh, with language, right? And so it's pretty clear that this was somebody who was highly educated, but they were highly educated in a Greek world, um, which makes me believe it was Barnabas. Uh, if you don't know who that is, that's okay. Come back when we get back into Acts, you'll find out. Barnabas is one of my favorite figures in the entire Bible. I love that guy. And so it makes me happy to think he wrote it. So there you go. He wrote it. Okay. There are other opinions out there and I highly respect them, but mine is currently right. And so <laughs> Barnabas didn't give us his name. Um, and, and that was on purpose. This was a beautiful letter written from an anonymous source. Whoever wrote this letter just wanted Jesus to be the focus. That was it. Whoever wrote this letter, the main thrust is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Look at him. And, uh, and I love that. But we, we don't know who wrote it exactly. But we do know when it was written. Um, scholars are, are pretty confident it was written somewhere around A.D. 63 or A.D. 64. We know it wasn't written after the destruction of the temple. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 because there are references in the letter to the temple and to the sacrifices taking place at the temple. Those references would have made no sense after A.D. 70. And in fact, the author would have, been, would have had the advantage of knowing that the temple was destroyed. It actually would have strengthened his argument. Uh, but because he doesn't refer to it, it's strong indication it hadn't happened yet. So we place the letter at A.D. 63, A.D. 64. That means that it took place almost exactly 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. 
Christ was crucified somewhere around AD 30 or 33, somewhere in that window, depending on how you, you date his birth, somewhere in that window. So about 30 years later. So comparing that uh, to today, what, what I want you to understand is we're talking about today to about 1986. Anybody, anybody remember the 80s? You with me? Anybody? Come on, show your hands. Solidarity. The 80s were wonderful. Some of you are like, dude, I was born in the 80s. I don't remember. Fine. Fine. But, but we've given you a lot of gifts, these, these 80s, right? The 80s were a real gift to American culture. We gave you back to the future. Isn't that enough? Isn't that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, beyond that, man, we gave you MTV, right? The birth of music videos, right? It wasn't just singing. You could actually now see people dancing in choreography to the videos, right? There you go. It's our gift to American culture. You could even watch it on TV, right? Um, we gave you the uh, Michael Jackson's album, Bad. We gave you U2's album, Joshua Tree. That was 1986, arguably one of the best albums ever produced on the face of the earth. That is an unbiased opinion. <laughs> we, uh, we gave you Michael Jordan playing for the Bulls. We gave you Tom Cruise in Top Gun. We gave you Madonna being Madonna. <laughs> we gave you the Cold War. You're welcome. We gave you Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and console games, which later developed into what consumes many of your lives now, home games, right? So yes, you're welcome for that too, right? We gave you acid wash jeans, jazzercise, the mullet, and parachute pants. Unlike the baggy gym pants that people call parachute pants now, the original parachute pants were about skin tight, and they were actually made of parachute-like material, thus the name parachute pants. And they had zippers, many, many zippers. I had some. I wore them. Um, all right, so this is what I want you to catch, you guys. The 80s were a real gift to the world. 1986. 1986, I was 17 years old. Some of you are like, dude, you're so old. I know. I was 17. 1986 is the year I graduated from high school. 1986 is the year that I um, had the opportunity to, to finally run away from home, really, and, and go to college. Um, you're like, dude, how do you know so much about the 80s? How do, you, how do you think I know? So you think I would like, like, you know, like, of course you researched it, right? Now you have Wikipedia. You didn't have that in the 80s, but now you got this thing called Wikipedia. You can just look it up, type in 1986. It gives you, yeah, I didn't have to do that. You're like, no, nah, you looked up all the pictures. Now, nah, well, I did for the slideshow, but you know how I knew how to look for them, right? Because I was there. I didn't have to research 1986. I remember 1986. I had parachute pants. I owned Joshua Tree. I watched the Challenger explode on TV in my classroom. You guys remember the Challenger? It was the, the space shuttle that was going up into space, carrying the first non-astronauts into space, a teacher and some others. And, and, and we watched it in school on live TV and watched it explode. You know how I, I know that? I saw it. I watched it. 30 years ago seems like a long time ago. And it was. But I remember it especially the important stuff. I remember meeting Lauren in 1986, the first time I met my future wife, 1986. See, Hebrews was written 30 years after the resurrection. The author remembered it. He wasn't just talking about something that, was, that was, he was uninformed about or just heard about. He was talking about something that he was there for right? Whether Paul wrote it or Barnabas or Apollos, it doesn't matter. They were alive at the time of the resurrection. They were there. They were the eyewitnesses and, in fact, had talked to other eyewitnesses. In fact, Paul's argument to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, where, where they're like, man, we're having a hard time believing in resurrection. He's like, go talk to the eyewitnesses. We've cataloged them. There's 500 of them in Jerusalem alone. Just take a day trip over to Jerusalem and go talk to them. The primary message of the New Testament church was Jesus is raised from the dead. The primary proof was go talk to the witnesses. Eyewitnesses carry a lot of weight. The more credible the witness is, the more weight their testimony carries, right? In a court of law, 
If somebody has a high level of credibility, their voice carries a lot of weight, especially if there's more than one of them. If you have multiple eyewitnesses that are attesting to the same thing and they're all coming together and they're all credible, that is a testimony that is as valuable and powerful as DNA evidence. When he says, we have confidence, he says it because they saw it. In the same way I can give, say confidently, I wore parachute pants <laughs> and I met my wife. We lived the events. So you can have confidence too. That's what he's saying. But how do we know? How do we know? How do we know he's telling the truth? Right? Isn't that always the question? How do we know he's telling the truth? How do we know he even lived? How do we know that the disciples even existed? Right? Some of you with a little bit of your spare time, I spent a little bit of time, you know, on the blogs, on YouTube, you know, you're like, dude, I watched a YouTube critic in four minutes and 37 seconds completely disprove the Bible. Really? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, first of all, to be really careful with these critics. They speak with a lot of authority, and authority can be intimidating. And they speak with disdain, usually. They're usually coming with like a little bit of disdain dripping as they, as they describe these, these ignorant believers in the resurrection, these stupid people. Um, you guys, there's a reason they're writing blogs and not for academic journals. There's a reason they're on YouTube and not being featured on the speaking circuit of, of academia. Um, because their goal often is to poke enough holes in Christianity so that they can say, look, you're wrong, therefore I must be right. Their goal isn't to prove anything. Their goal is just to cast enough shade, to, to, to bring up enough critique that you're like, man, that, I guess you're right. I guess this is hard to believe. Well, see, then I must be right. It's way easier to disprove something than prove something. It's an old debate technique. When you're in debate with someone, you don't have to necessarily prove your point. You just have to bring enough criticism of theirs that, that, that you put them on the defensive. And if you can poke enough holes, uh, then you don't really need to prove yourself right. You just need to prove them wrong. And I've spent a lot of time on these blogs, and I've spent a lot of time looking at these, these videos. Uh, first of all, because I think we should uh, be listening to the questions of our, those who bring critique against our faith. I think it actually strengthens our faith. I think it helps us grow in our ability to interact with an intelligent culture. Um, but I, it also helps us listen to the voices that are influencing culture. And, and what I find, sadly, a lot of times is that these guys aren't bringing any real explanation of what we know to be true. In fact, they avoid that completely. All they're trying to do is cast enough shade that people feel uh, insecure in, uh, in, their, in their faith. It's much easier to disprove something than prove it, which is why we have so many conspiracy theories, you guys, <laughs> right? Conspiracy theorists aren't proving anything. They're just trying to poke enough holes in the standard explanation that you're left going, okay, I guess I'm not sure if we landed on the moon. Well, then obviously it must have been staged in Arizona in a warehouse. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Right? You need to poke enough holes in it that, that, oh, yeah, I guess this guy really was assassinated by the government, right? Right? Well, how do we know that? Because there's enough holes poked in the story. All they're doing is looking for inconsistencies, anything they can point to that will ultimately help them um, disprove something. In the process, they don't prove a thing. How do you know Jesus lived? How do you know the disciples lived? What is the real evidence? we should be wrestling with. I'm not going to go through a super detailed list. I'm not going to start quoting Pliny and those guys. It, it, it would be tedious and exhausting. Um, but I want to give you a summary statement and ask you to do further digging if this is an area of challenge for you. Scholar Gary Habermas did a study of contemporary scholarship. And what I mean by contemporary scholarship is 1975 to the present. So he's not looking at ancient scholarship. He's looking at current critical scholarship. He compiled a list of more than 2,200 sources from French, German, and English sources uh, in which historical experts wrote on the historical Jesus. These are people that are both friendly to the idea of resurrection and skeptical of the idea of resurrection, believers and unbelievers. What he was trying to find out is what are the commonalities on which they agree? When all the scholars come together, now there's no one point where it's like 100%, but, but as far as general commonality, when you see the majority of the scholars coming together, what are the things that we can assert with confidence? You ready? Jesus lived. He was a real man. That is, uh, from a scholarly level, generally and, and widely accepted. He was a real man, that he was crucified. 
that, that he was actually lifted up on a Roman cross and crucified, that he was buried, which makes sense because he died, right? Pretty much everyone agrees that he was put into a tomb, that that tomb was then found empty. Now, that's where we're going to start diverging. A lot of people have a lot of different explanations for, for that piece, but, but pretty much generally accepted. Like, this is like common, like there's plenty of evidence. Everybody, scholars, critical, the, the, the tomb was empty. Common, um, commonly accepted that the disciples were scattered when that occurred, that they were put into a state of confusion and self-protection. It is generally accepted as well that immediately after the empty tomb was found, um, the disciples started talking about resurrection, that that became the first and primary message of the early church. It didn't come 100 years later. It was the first and primary message of the early church. And that the disciples who were scattered were actually the apostles who led this early movement. So there was a transformation. These guys went from confused, self-protective, scattered people to highly unified, highly directed, bold voices leading a chaotic movement of growth across the, the Middle East that would affect the entire world. In fact, so much so that they were willing to die for their message. Now, there's, there's debate on how they died, but it is pretty much, again, universally accepted that they all died. There's not a single story, not a single source that ever recounts a single apostle recanting before they died. So what that means is they immediately started preaching resurrection. They then went on to live 30, 40, 50 more years of suffering, rejection, pain, holding to that message and suffering for that message, and then dying brutal deaths. Four of them were crucified. Two of them were crucified upside down. One of them was skinned alive before he was crucified upside down. Two of them were speared to death. One of them stabbed with a sword. And one of them exiled to solitary confinement. On an island. These guys died for the message. It's also universally, pretty universally accepted that those who were skeptical, there were key skeptical figures who became believers after the resurrection. James, the brother of Jesus. Um, when we see him in Mark chapter 3, he is part of the family unit who basically look at Jesus and they're like, this guy is crazy. So they actually tried to seize Jesus and drag him home. Because at the beginning of his ministry, they're like, this guy's nuts. Our brother is crazy. Come on, let's just go do him in the world a favor and drag him home, right? James is part of that group. And yet, after the resurrection, James not only becomes a believer, he becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem, the primary leader in the church of Jerusalem, one of the primary shaping forces. Sudden, dramatic change. Paul, Paul was a man who was raised um, to hate the church. He, he loved traditional Judaism. He was raised to take deep pride in his national and cultural heritage. And then he suddenly, radically, overnight, set aside everything that had made him important, everything that gave him fame, everything that gave him privilege, everything that gave him power, everything that gave him all the things he was pursuing and wanted in life. He, he, he then spent the next 30 to 40 years of his life suffering. And the explanation he gave for it was that he saw the risen Christ. Listen to me, if you're going, if you're not going to believe in the resurrection, it's not enough to just find inconsistencies and holes and and to cast shade. You have to find a way to explain this stuff. If you're not going to believe in the resurrection, you have to find a way to explain history. All of this, right? The early church, we know, there was explosive growth in the early church. Where did it take place? It started in Jerusalem, the very place Jesus was raised from the dead. When? At the very moment he was raised from the dead. Not 200 miles farther away 200 years later. Christianity saw explosive growth at ground zero, the very place the events took place at the very time they took place. You have to explain that. You have to explain the radical transformation of the disciples. How did they go from self-protective, bumbling idiots to being bold and courageous to the point of extreme suffering and even death? And you're like, dude, I, I believe in conspiracy theories. I think they all just lied together. You have greater faith in humanity than I do. 
You ever seen a group of people lie together and try to keep that lie? I was a teacher. I saw it a lot. <laughs> and I can tell you, it doesn't work, right? Because first of all, there's a bunch of inconsistencies in the stories, and pretty soon they get all insecure, and then pretty soon they're like, it was him! <laughs> right? They get self-protective. To think that these guys could hold that kind of conspiracy for that kind of time without ever wavering in the message, being willing to even go to miserable deaths to protect the, the, the integrity of what they were saying. Seriously, man, that takes more faith than believing Jesus rose from the dead. See, the one thing that makes sense of all of this to me, it all makes sense. If Jesus rose from the dead, it completely explains it. It explains why, why enemies would become friends. It explains why cowards would become brave. It would explain why the explosive growth in the very place it took place at the very time it took place. Listen to me. If you don't believe in the resurrection, I get it. It's hard to believe. But you're not off the hook just because you say it's hard to believe. you got a lot of other stuff you got to explain. And it's on you to explain it. The author of Hebrews says, we have confidence we know this to be true, and we have staked our lives on it. And Barnabas, the author of Hebrews, <laughs> invites us into that confidence, right? He says, we have confidence. I have confidence, and you should too. All right, this confidence wasn't just in the events, though. Our confidence is in what those events uh, produce. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way, which was opened to us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Pause there. This is very loaded language. He is referring a lot of symbolism here, referring to the temple. Um, and so what he's saying is we have the confidence to enter holy places. He's talking about the temple itself. The temple was divided into two areas, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place, only um, the Levitical priesthood could go into. They went into it every day. They had to change the table of showbread. They had to light the, the incense. They had all kinds of worship things that they did in this area. But then there was a super heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That space was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the mercy seat was. And only the high priest could go into that space and then only once a year. He had to come in with blood from an animal sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. When he went in, he had bells around the hem of his garment so that they could hear him moving. He also had a rope around his ankle. If he stopped moving, they'd pull him out. Nobody else would go in there because they also would die. So what I want you to hear is for him to say, we have confidence to enter the holy places is a radically countercultural thing for him to say. This is not something somebody who was raised in Judaism would ever say. They didn't have confidence to come into holy places. Holy places were scary places. Holy places where the, where the holiness of God was, was established, man, man, that was a scary place because God's holiness judges sin and I'm a sinner. And if I come into that presence when I'm not invited, I'm going to be struck dead. Now, the animal sacrifices, of course, were simply shadows of the true sacrifice. The temple was just a shadow of the real temple. The temple is the meeting place between God and man, right? In the New Testament, the temple is Jesus, God in the flesh, the meeting place between God and man. He is the living temple. And when his skin was torn on the cross, what the author is saying is that was like the temple of the, cur the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies being ripped in two and an invitation being opened to sinners. Sinners could now enter the holy places through the torn curtain of His flesh, this fresh and living way. The text says new and living. I love that, that word new. It's a word that was used in the meat market to describe the meat that was hanging. And so the meat market was fed by idolatrous temples and they would have animal sacrifices. The Jewish temple never fed their meat to the market, but, but they had this word that would describe the meat that was hanging in the meat markets. It was this word, new. And what it meant was freshly slain. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we have a way into the presence of God and it is through the freshly slain and living way of Christ. What we see there is the paradox of the death and the resurrection. See, Christ's death never grows stale. 
Christ's death does not have an expiration date. Christ's death is forever fresh. That's why he's described in the book of Revelation prophetically as the lamb standing as if slain. Again, that same paradox, both alive and dead. Christ will carry in him his death for all of eternity. It is fresh, it is effective, and it is the only way for man to approach God. And we approach through the curtain, the tearing of his flesh. He lived a perfect life. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for ours. And when he did, he died as our substitute in our place. He took our, sh- our shame. He took our sin. He became the embodiment of our offense. He walked into the no man's land between God's holiness and our sin, and he absorbed the wrath of God against our rebellion, the consequences of our cosmic treason. He died in our place. And when he rose again, it proved that God's wrath was completely satisfied. It proved that judgment had been satisfied. When he rose from the dead, it meant death had been defeated. That's why we can approach God with confidence. Because we come through the finished work of Christ, not ours. We don't earn our way into the presence of God. Christ earned our way into the presence of God. We don't stand on our own religious behavior. We never could. We stand on his merits, not ours. That's why it has to be by faith. We believe in Christ, which means we simply trust that He is our Savior. He is the one who went into that holy place, the holy temple, which was His body, offering up the holy sacrifice, which was Himself, and dying in our place and rising again so that our guilt and shame might be put to death and we might be covered with an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own, a righteousness given to us as a gift. All right, this message that I just unpacked right here from from this verse radically countercultural to the Jewish mind. Like for Barnabas or Paul or whoever wrote it to preach this message, something drastic had to happen to free them from their understanding of religion, right? Something came in and overnight transformed their cultural and religious convictions. And you're like, dude, people do that all the time. People change their religious convictions all the time. Yeah, but we're not talking about America here. Right? We're not talking about the tossed salad of religious convictions where you can just put different toppings on whatever week feels right. You know, like, like whatever feels right, well, that's okay. We're talking about people that have been shaped in this tradition, shaped by these values, shaped by this culture for thousands of years. They were fiercely protective of their faith and of their traditions. And in fact, the early church persecuted the early church. The, 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 the Jewish leaders persecuted the early church precisely because they said things like this. They took it as blasphemy against the temple and blasphemy against the holiness of God. This was a radical message. It was not one that grew naturally or one they made up. They had to be pushed toward it. Something had to radically change their view to the point that they would say things that would not only cost them their standing in culture, but even cost them their lives. We are confident to enter holy places. And this kind of faith doesn't just come from believing in the events. It comes from believing in the person, right? That next verse, going back to verse 20, by a new and living way, that fresh, freshly slain and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have confidence, not just because Jesus died and not just because Jesus rose from the dead, but because in rising from the dead, he rose as our great priest. He rose with a purpose. You want to know why they were confident in their confession to the point of death? Why they were willing to go to the cross, willing to be filleted alive, willing to be stabbed through the heart? You want to know why they were willing to completely reject everything they used to live for? It's because they knew they had a living high priest representing them before God. It was because they saw Jesus rise from the dead and they understood that he now was their representative with God. It changes everything. Their understanding of themselves, their understanding of the world, their understanding of why they're here, their understanding of what makes life meaningful, it changes everything. And unlike an earthly high priest who had to make sacrifices first for his own sins and then to the people, Jesus' perfect the sacrifice was perfect. It was complete. How could they not be bold? How could they not be changed? Like, this is exactly what I would expect to see if it were true. 
The stuff we see that actually happened is the stuff we would actually expect to see if it was true. People who didn't think this was like, everybody there was like crazy. And they're like, man, they saw the effects. They listened to the eyewitnesses. They, they, they heard the message and it completely changed their lives because he is our great high priest. The great high priest who entered the true temple and offered the true and eternal sacrifice of himself that we might be made right. Because of that, we can follow where he leads. All right, family, listen. Um, we can have confidence. It's a provocative statement in our culture in a time where we don't like to have confidence in anything. We are a, a culture of skeptics. We question everything and we take pride in our ability to question everything. We can have confidence. Let's be bold. That doesn't mean we don't ask questions. Let's be bold in the questions we ask. If you have questions, ask them and then dig into the material. We'll help you. There are great resources. We'll point you to them. You've got to be willing to do a little bit of the heavy lifting, you guys. This is not a secondary question. You can't be like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I guess I should think about that someday and then go get distracted by Facebook again, right? This is a primary concern. This is dealing with matters of, of eternal consequence. Don't you think it's worth a little bit of energy to investigate the questions you have? We will refer you to material that is scholarly and accessible. We'll walk with you through it, and we won't insist that you always think like we think. We just want to help you get into it. Believer, you need to grow in your confidence. You guys, this is a beautiful message of love. Here's the thing, you guys. Even if you don't believe this is true, you should want it to be true. What, what kind of love is like this? Like, uh, the account of the, the creation of all things, right? God spoke and all things existed. What did it cost Him to create? From what we can tell, nothing. What did it cost Him to recreate? What did it cost Him to redeem what had been lost? It cost Him everything. There is no love like this love. What that means is that you have infinite dignity and infinite worth and infinite purpose that goes well beyond uh, what you can carve out for yourself in this world. It goes well beyond what you've done or what's been done to you. It is an alien righteousness that gives you dignity and purpose and beauty and value that affirms the worth of your soul. When the God of love reach out, reaches out to you in love and says, I don't judge you, I love you. In fact, I love you so much I've judged my son for you that you might be my son, that you might be my daughter, that you might be made like Christ. This message, these events completely transformed Barnabas, Paul, James, turned the world upside down and it continues to transform the world. Do you have this confidence? Unbeliever, will you believe today? See, the beauty of this isn't, isn't just a, an intellectual challenge. It is a continual invitation. Jesus died that you might believe. Jesus died not just so that he could win an intellectual argument. He didn't rise again just to make a point. He did it to offer an invitation, and that invitation is before you today, and it is to believe and be made new. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection will, will lead to the recreation of the entire universe. It is the inauguration of the kingdom of God, which will break into the kingdom of man. It is God's first step in setting all things right, but He does it through people who believe. He does it through individual stories of recreation and redemption. Will you become one of those this morning? Will you simply trust, not in your ability to fix yourself, not in your ability to perform for God, but in Christ's ability to open up for you a freshly slain and living way into the presence of God to cover you with a righteousness not your own? Believer, will you grow in boldness? Will you grow in confidence? Will you, in fact, ask your high priest to give you the gift of increased faith that you might grow in just this settled belief and strength that Christ is risen, that as you go through life, you won't keep losing sight of this, getting distracted by your career or your 401k or, or, or how, you know, somebody at work maybe said something unpleasant to you or something nasty that happened to happen on Facebook, whatever. Will you pray that this will become a settled awareness in your life, that you will remain awake to the beauty of it. 
because there is nothing more freeing or joyful or powerful than being able to say that Christ is your life. So I want to wrap up with this. I'm going to put Galatians 2.20 up on the screen. I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to read it out loud. I want you to say it with me. Read it off of the screen. Especially, you know, this is true. I want you speaking this to your heart. Okay, here we go. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, as we wrap up, there are two ways we're going to respond to this today. The first is in communion. Um, I am going to have an elder come up and introduce communion in a few moments. Uh, But the other is baptism. Uh, We have the baptismal set up. And uh, baptism is a wonderful way to celebrate the resurrection of Christ because it is the celebration of a believer's faith in Christ, right? We do this because Jesus commanded it. Jesus basically said, uh, go out and make disciples, share the gospel with them, lead them to a point of faith, right? And then when they become believers, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. We don't do this to earn anything from God. We don't do this to, to make ourselves better. We do this because Jesus died and rose again for us, and we can rest in Him and trust in Him. And so when we go into the water, it represents the fact that we are united with Christ in His death, that His death was my death. We come out of the water, it's symbolic of the fact that my guilt, my shame, my sin isn't mine anymore. It was left on the cross. And when I rise, I now rise in new life covered with a new identity, the identity that is my gift in Christ. It is a celebration of Him, not me, right? So here's the thing. We had, we had baptisms scheduled, um, but for various reasons, those who were going to be baptized um, weren't able to be here. So what that means is we have a baptismal and an opportunity. And I would like to share that opportunity with you. If you are a believer in Christ and you haven't been dunked, we would love to share that celebration with you today. If you became a believer this morning, if you're wrestling with it, you're, man, I think, I think I'm there, man. I think I'm a believer. Praise God. Let's, let's, uh, let's celebrate with baptism. If you've been a believer for a long time but have never taken the step of obedience, today's a great day to do it, right? Um, and I mean this, you guys. You came here dry. You can go home wet. It's all good, right? And I know that some of you are wrestling with things like, like well, immediately going through your head, well, what will people think? What will so-and-so think? Isn't it a more important question to ask, what will Jesus think? Isn't this about obedience to Christ? Not, not trying to impress people or try to... Let, let God work out the details, man. You be obedient, right? If you're a believer in Jesus and you haven't been dunked, you have the opportunity to obey today, right? You're like, Steve, I'm, I'm not a member here, man, and I'm cool with that. You know, that's okay. I'm not sure I even want you to be a member here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's not what this is about. You're, you're not being baptized because you're a member of Trailhead Church. You're being baptized because you're a member of Christ, because you believed in Him. You don't have to be a member of Trailhead Church. You just need to be a believer in Jesus, right? Steve, I don't have the clothes. Ah, we got you covered. We have, uh, we have shorts of all sizes. We have T-shirts. Yeah, but what about the intimates? Yeah, we have underwear too, um, right? We're, we're not going to make you actually go home wet. We've got you covered. Um, and uh, we have towels. Yeah, but Steve, my life is a mess, man. My life is a mess. Yeah, you know, that's why it's not a celebration of you. That's why it's not a celebration of your obedience or your ability to earn anything from God. It's a celebration of the fact that Jesus can save even you. Right? It's a celebration of your Savior and His work, not your work for your Savior. If the Spirit of God is stirring your heart, if you want to be baptized, if the Spirit of God is bringing conviction that you should, Don't wait. Don't resist the Spirit. The celebration is here. We would love to share it with you. We're going to have leaders over by the door, community group leaders, I'm talking to you. Um, We're going to have some leaders over by the door. If God is stirring your heart and you think you want to follow in baptism, we want you to go speak to them, okay? It doesn't mean you're going to be baptized. Maybe we just need to clarify some questions. Maybe we need to explore some stuff. Maybe we need to open a conversation, uh, but, if, but if we talk with you and we're like, yeah, man, we, we, we're, we agree with you. This is not only the right thing, but the right time. Um, we're going to get you hooked up. 
okay? We'll get you hooked up today, but it does mean you need to respond. It does mean that you need to step out in faith and say, I want to obey, okay? The rest of you, we're going to ask you to stick around um, uh, for a few moments after the service. We will let you know if we have a baptism. Uh, If not, praise God, right? Jesus still rose from the dead, and uh, we get to celebrate that fact today, but we would love to celebrate it with baptism. So we're going to open it up and just ask men, Spirit, uh, we're asking Him to, to stir the hearts, okay? Let me pray for us. We're going to move into a time of response. We'll share communion together. And, um, and we'll see what God does. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have confidence, not because we're intelligent enough or smart enough, not because we can even figure this thing out. We can have confidence because you've shown us your heart. And it's beautiful. You haven't explained away your glory or lessened your holiness. Instead, You've demonstrated your holiness in such a way that we see the invitation so beautifully as an invitation of love. You don't ask us to fix a problem we could never fix. You don't ask us to solve a dilemma that is unsolvable to us. We could never fix our own hearts. We could never remove our own sin. So you did it for us. You paid a price. We have no idea even how to esteem. You suffered in ways that we can't make sense of. And you don't ask us to. You just ask us to be loved. You just ask us to receive the love you extend. You just ask us to respond in humility instead of pride. Spirit, I pray that you will humble our hearts this morning. That we'll be renewed in the joy of the resurrection of Christ and and renewed in in the solemn humility that comes from knowing that it's because of us he had to die. That we will be filled with humility and joy and thus be able to move into freedom as we are able to say, it is Christ in me. I pray for those that are wrestling, that you give them the gift of surrender. I pray for those that are fighting, that you'll give them the gift of rest. I pray, Lord, for those who are fighting to have clarity that you'll give them the gift of faith. Even if all their answers aren't matching up to all their questions, they'll gravitate toward that love like a moth toward the light. Spirit, do what only you can do. Make Jesus great. And awaken us to joy. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.